Okay, we're back again, part two. Okay. Now, I can't help but think of someone else who was described as meek and lonely in heart. And he had a wilderness experience, too. I'm talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Immediately after his baptism by John in Matthew 3.16, two verses later, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So the Lord, our Father, our Jesus, was preparing the Lord, his Son, our Redeemer, during his time of the wilderness too. Also, it's important to know that this wilderness is also sometimes referred to as a desert or a plain. P-L-A-I-N. Okay, the Hebrew word is number 4057, Midbar, referred to as desert or plain. And the Greek word is number 2048 in the concordance, and it's Aremos. They both are meant to be pictured and understood as desolate places, open pastures, secluded places and unpopulated places. Now, we can safely conclude, I think, that a desert or a wilderness is a place where God meets with us, or you, or where you go, where I go, to meet with God. It's desolate, it's unpopulated, it's an open place. Now Luke 5.16 says, but he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places to pray. This was a habit for him, if you know the Bible at all. It's mentioned often. And I only use this verse because it uses the word desolate. And I think that's important because the Lord's teaching us about wilderness and about a desert. And it's often these spiritual places and times in our lives that God uses to prepare us to be meek. That includes what Jeremiah declared, this time in chapter 1, verse 10, when he's talking about plucking up and breaking down and destroying and overthrowing, but also to build and to plant. Now that verse, in its immediate context, is talking about something a little different, but God's saying, I want my people, especially those in my authority, to be meek. It's a prerequisite. I will meet with you in desolate places. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in private, in a wilderness, in a desert, in a desolate place, in a eremos. Okay, you seek me where you can be alone or I will bring you to a place, physical or spiritual, where I have chosen to meet with you. You might stay here for a while, or keep running back repeatedly, but something will happen here. And if you're submissive, reliant, dependent, trusting, and obedient, you will emerge in meekness. In fact, Isaiah prophesied about John the Baptist, saying, A voice cries in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Matthew 3 says John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now John either met with people in the desert when he was baptizing, or he came from the desert and lived there. I don't know. Okay, And Jesus said of him in Matthew 11, 11, he said, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus further, again, said in Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. John was living proof, right? He was meek. Now, I mentioned before how many pastors, teachers, good men of God, okay, they've attempted to put this concept of meekness into words we can understand and put into practice. And the phrase I've heard many times, almost singularly heard, is power under control or strength under control, like we said before. And this isn't wrong, and the change, but I need to, but, but it's not, um, as I'm truly beginning to grasp what meek means, I would change it slightly, okay? And the change is important. In a sense, there's not much difference on the outside, but there's a there's a nuance, okay? There's a subtle distinction that needs to be pointed out. I would say strength or power that is yielded or submitted. Okay, the first seems to the first seems to suggest maybe you don't see it this way, but the first seems to suggest that we retain the strength or power, but we push it down. We we keep it restrained or or dormant until it's needed. Okay, and that can be true in a worldly sense if you try and do it on your own. But in a spiritual, godly, kingdom sense, that strength or power is given over, purposefully, relinquished yielded, submitted to the Lord Jesus. He said he laid his life down of his own accord, but we're laying this down of our own accord, okay? He will activate it when necessary. He controls it. He has the reins over it and over us. It's not under our control. We may think it is, but it's not. It's under his. Remember, our lives as Christians, our lives are not our own. Okay, we've been ransomed. We've been bought with a price, the Bible says. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Okay, we were buried with him in baptism. We are not to be like the world, okay, who merge forward when the sign says clearly yield. Okay, don't get me started on traffic. That's a pet peeve, okay? But how many times have you seen it where it says yield, but instead we merge every single time, or they do. I, I don't, okay? Anyway, we're not going to be like the world, okay? It's a different sign. There's a yield and merge. A different sign, different shape, different color, different words. Should be very clear and obvious, okay? But that's the world. They are not meek. Neither was I when I was in the world. Neither were you. Neither are you, okay? If you're not if you weren't, if you're, if you no longer in the world, if you are still in the world, okay, any strength or power they have has not been submitted, nor will it. It's not under the Lord's control, as far as they're concerned. Now, Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, "The sacrifices of God, the things that are pleasing to Him, are a broken 
spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. At the very least, and as a starting point, one must be broken before he or she can be molded into a vessel of meekness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, King Jesus tells us to take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Let's emphasize that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Our only focus, our only example, our only teacher in becoming meek, in becoming truly Christ-like, which is the race we're in and the imperishable crown or wreath that we're rewarded with when we finish, is Messiah himself. It's his yoke we're to carry or submit to. It's him we're to learn of and from and about and emulate. He is meek. There is no other way by which we can accomplish this. We must do this. It's in his meekness, his anab and his praus, that we will find rest for our souls. Meekness must not only define us, show itself in our thoughts, show itself in the intentions and motives of our hearts, show itself in our speech, but show itself in our actions. It's an integral part of being chiseled and sculpted and coiled and glazed and fired and molded by our King, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Master, and our Potter. Without meekness having been established and perfected in us, as it is with love, we are Christians, but we are incomplete followers of Christ. So I ask myself, and I ask you, what does true Christ-like meekness look like? How can I measure my progress? How can I recognize it in order to imitate it and yield to it when it wants to replace some fleshly area in my life? And that's what it's all about, okay? These are critical questions. Going back to what Jesus says to all of us who want and need to follow after him. We read in Matthew 11:29 again, it says, learn from me. The King James Version says it a little differently. I like it better here. It says, learn of me. Okay. In other words, watch what I do and imitate me. Listen to what I say and pay attention. Ask questions. Study me. Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that puts a real burden or high, high, um, uh, what do I want to call it? A high stick to follow after, high measuring stick to, on himself because he says, Christ is like this and I've got to imitate Christ and I'm supposed to. And if I want you to imitate me, then that puts the onus on me to be even more sure that I imitate Christ. I could just sit back and say, you imitate Christ. It's your walk in the Lord. But I don't. I say, let me imitate Christ and you imitate me. So if I'm on board with what Jesus is showing me and telling me and teaching me and you do what I say and do and and, and then, then we're all going to be on the same page. So let's read through some of the book of Matthew and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us 
and call our attention to some words and phrases and sentences and short passages that will speak to us and show us what aspects of Christ Jesus will help us understand his ways and thoughts and motives and deeds that manifest his meekness. Holy Spirit, let's pray first. Holy Spirit, Father God, Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to be like you. You want us to be like you. That's why you made us new creatures. As we hear your voice in your word and choose to follow after you and learn of you, teach us and mold us, shape us back into the vessels you originally intended for us to be before the world began. Help us to be Christ-like. Help us to be meek. May others see you in us. Let us point them to you and glorify you in what we do and how we speak and what we wear and our motives and everything about us. Ingrain a true grasp and lasting comprehension of what meekness truly is in us that as we go forward in this life this will be our growth chart thank you so so much for this journey we're about to embark on with you amen which means so be it in matthew chapter one we see that King Jesus submitted to the Father's plan of redemption by allowing himself to be born as a man, like one of us in his outward appearance. By lowering himself in this way, he wasn't seeking self-glorification, but by entrusting himself in his earthly life to our Creator's plan, he was a willing participant and catalyst in God's universal and gracious plan of salvation. He yielded his life and humbled himself before the Father. Looking ahead to chapter 3, John the Baptist says of Jesus in verse 11, He who is coming after me is mightier than I. And he expresses the fact that he's not worthy to carry even the straps of his sandals. Yet in the following verses, the word tells us that Jesus came to Galilee. He made a special trip to be baptized by John. John even said to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus meekly and lowly in heart submitted to John and was baptized. It was then the glory of heaven and the audible approval of the Father was shown to him. It was personal. The Bible says the heavens were open to him. No one else saw this, at least it doesn't say that, and that he, so only he, not everybody else, saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Holy Spirit is invisible to man, to creation, but Jesus can see him. Then all present were able to hear Almighty God's affirmation, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is meekness learn of him and that we should do continuing the next chapter four from the beginning 
it tells us that our Lord, like Moses, and as we mentioned earlier, immediately after his baptism, was led by the Spirit. It was God's will, and he submitted to it and yielded to it, into the wilderness. Remember, we mentioned that before. Moses is spoken of, as we said, as being meek. In fact, it says very meek. And he was in the wilderness. Jesus is meek. And he, by God's design also, is led into the wilderness, the desert, the desolate place. Jesus did not resist. In fact, he fasted in preparation for it. And not only that, but he did so for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. And not just that, but ultimately to be tempted, tested, same thing, by the devil. The very one who two, cha two chapters earlier through King Herod was trying to kill him. And so he ended up killing all the toddlers of a certain age to make sure he got rid of Jesus. The same devil was tempting him. He had to be in the wilderness to be prepared by, for that. He had to be meek, not relying on himself. Messiah didn't flee, didn't get anxious, didn't fear like I probably would, didn't let his tongue get the better of him. He didn't complain. He didn't get angry. He didn't whine or feel sorry for himself. These are not characteristics of meekness. Okay, but they are natural, so they're somewhat understandable. He, in his physical weakness from the fasting for so long, knew full well the promise that was later made to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, which we take for ourselves too. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And he received it. When the devil tempted him three times, he calmly and authoritatively rebuked him with the word of God. He spoke truth in response to lies. The Old Testament prophet Hosea, chapter 4, verse 6, warns us and laments by saying, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Jesus, though he was meek, had not only a perfect knowledge and understanding of the word, but put it into good, practical, and effective use as well. This is also a classic illustration of James 4, 7, another familiar verse, okay? It tells us, one, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Two, resist the devil. Three, he will flee from you. Jesus, in his meekness, submitted to God by fasting and being led into the wilderness and being tempted. He resisted the devil with the truth and by not being obedient to the one who is not only evil, but has no authority over him. And when he said, Be gone, Satan, the following verse says, Then the devil left him. Okay? So it was not only a fleeing in response to a command, it was a godly equation, if you want to look at it that way. Okay? You have submit to God, which is meekness, plus resist the devil, which is obedience, equals he will flee from you. Victory. Hallelujah. Amen? Okay, so we have this spiritual equation. Submit to God, have meekness, plus resist the devil, which is obedience. We want that too. Equals the devil will flee from you. Hallelujah. That's victory. 
thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord God. Also in this chapter, we see the Lord begin to preach. His message was the same, exactly the same, as a matter of fact, as John the Baptist. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We might say, turn from your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is here, now. How do people respond to that message today? This is truth. It's spoken in love. The Bible instructs us to do it. Is it seen or perceived in meekness? No, not most of the time. Uh, are, are, are we supposed to change the message? Or the way we deliver it or the way we proclaim it? No. So meekness, though it is what Christ is, and it's a fruit of the Spirit, is evidence of a life submitted, yielded, and obedient to God. It's a fruit displayed in Christian maturity as the flesh is dropped off and shed like skin, like, like snake skin. Walking in the authority of Jesus who indwells us, yet not lorded over others. Let's sidetrack for a moment. I sense the Lord taking us by the hand to show us something. To remind us of something we know a little bit about and have read before. Let's turn to John 13, beginning with verse 4, speaking of Jesus in the presence of his disciples. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, fixed it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Skipping down to verses 12, 17, okay. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do, I un do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to, ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one that sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you, meek are you, I'm adding, if you do them. First of all, the last sentence points to and refers to the theme of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, a lesson in summary of true meekness, okay, which we were about to get into before the Lord guided us to John so appropriately. Secondly, did you notice or pick up the comparison between Peter's reaction in verse 6 with John the Baptist's reaction in Matthew 3.14. Jesus, who was ever meek and lonely in spirit, 
lowly in spirit, was about to wash Peter's feet. Peter's response was probably what yours and mine would be. Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, I should be washing your feet. Then in Matthew, Jesus, still true to his meekness, is about to be baptized by John. The prophet's response was the same. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John and Peter both rec recognized and realized that it should have been the other way around. Peter should have washed Jesus' feet, and John should have been baptized by Jesus. I agree. That's how I would feel. But, by the Lord's voluntary acts of being meek and humble and lowly in spirit and self-effacing, he actually couldn't help but call attention to himself, which is not his heart or his intention, other than teaching and showing him and uh, them and us something that couldn't be learned or grasped or emulated any other way. I was listening to a short video a couple of days ago, and it was the first part of a small series that focused on the family had emailed me, and it invited me to freely download it. And in the first installment, there's two guys and in the, from the ministry, and they were interviewing a, a young pastor, mid to late 30s, young for me, who had written a book, and he called it, it's about declaring war on yourself. It's his, it was his way of recognizing that sometimes we can be our own worst enemy, right? Amen to that? And the overarching message is about embracing humility. So the Lord's timing on this was perfect, as usual. One thing that I remember standing out to me in this very short video, and it was, was his response to the interviewer's question and his analogy of he hung around, he said, he had an analogy. He said, okay, if you're hanging around, for example, with Peyton Manning or Drew Brees and throwing the football with him, he said, if you'd like to throw the football, you think you're good at throwing football, and all of a sudden you're around Drew Brees or Peyton Manning, he says, you might throw the ball pretty well, but in the presence of greatness, he says, our natural response should be humility, if not embarrassment right it's pretty obvious in that setting that whatever we think we are or have become is not what we thought or even imagined or would love to believe about ourselves so he emphasizes the need to be in the word and i agree to be in intimate fellowship with the lord of our salvation in the presence regular habitual constant presence of true greatness that our only true response is humility, is meekness. And today in our study, we would broaden that to include meekness, as I mentioned, okay? And lowliness of heart. Amen, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for showing us this. Glory to your name. This is perfect. Now, in, in, in light of that, how all the more meek we should be if he comes to be baptized by us, if he comes to wash our feet. Okay, John and Peter, they had the right response, but they were just learning. And so am I, really, really. And maybe you are too, but I so desperately need and want this to stick, to get into me. 
to take hold and take over and remain. And God wants this. And that's why he's leading to me, leading me into all of this. And I hope this is part of what you hearing this is all about, too. Now, long before the Lord was laying this character trait on my heart, this core necessity of being, speaking, thinking, and acting upon my heart and mind, he was allowing me to observe in others and reflect on myself the understanding of a few things, particularly respect and authority and how they really have a needed relationship. And that's important to understand in order to grasp meekness. The father allowed me about 10 or 12 years ago in a country where my wife is from, okay, the father allowed me to be an English teacher, which I had no experience at, okay, at first, and then um, a language arts teacher from June of 2009 to about December of 2011. I'd never done it before, nor did I have any educational prepping for that. It was all unique and it was all of the Lord, believe me. First, I taught at a couple of small institutions, uh, which was God's way of preparing me for something else, which is great, um, with adults. Then at a school with children, with young people, it became increasingly obvious to me, working with children, that having authority to some degree, portraying authority and walking in and acting and speaking in authority was a must as a teacher. I've been given a measure of authority just by virtue of my position and responsibility and had that backed up by my principals and by my superintendent. But really establishing that and properly exuding it, walking in it, showing it was up to me. It was something I had to learn. In my inner bumbling and stumbling, which I did in this regard, I noticed on more than one occasion that I allowed varying degrees of disrespect to a degree. I don't put up with that much, but tiny bit, okay? I allowed varying degrees of disrespect and disobedience to, to rattle or doubt my authority, okay? So inevitably, and without consciously realizing it, and in an effort to restore my authority and regain order with a child or children, I appealed to a higher or more established person of authority, which the kids would recognize and fear or honor, at the very least submit to, usually a parent or another teacher or someone in, in the administration like principal or my friend, the superintendent, or even the pastor, because the school was an outreach of the church. That approach often worked, at least in the short term, but all it really did, really, all it really did was send the message that my own authority was insufficient or fragile or lacking and did absolutely nothing to teach the child or the children, even those simply observing these instances, that I was in charge, that I was the one they were to submit to and obey and honor and respect. Humans, like dogs, I hear, smell fear and weakness. And when they detect it, their carnal nature, people, 
will seize the opportunity to trample on someone else's weakness. Once I realized this, proposed, excuse me, purposed myself to address it and took corrective measures to alter it, to implement it inwardly and outwardly, then the situations and the atmosphere and the relationships would get back on course and remain that way. And as long as I was confident, not cocky, not arrogant, but as long as I was confident, assured, but didn't lord it over them, there was no fear, so I didn't have to over, I didn't have to overexert myself in words or gestures or facial expressions or discipline or extra homework or anything. The proper authority had been truly established. I still had to make I still had to mete out discipline from time to time. I still had to assert myself as head from time to time, but it was not in frustration or anger or with a raised voice. Once I was a little more meek, though back then I had no idea what that was at the time, because I was confident and assured in Jesus, in the role and the authority that I had and was given, then I could calmly yet firmly and assertively, if necessary, speak and give instructions and expect them to be obeyed and carried out. Respect was renewed because the confident, assured meekness was showing itself. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus was signifying when he said these very important and telling words to those within the sound of his divine voice in John 10, 18, speaking of his voluntary but obedient decision to give his life for us who would be his sheep. He says, no one takes it, my life. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Do you see the meekness? He received the charge or the command or the order from the father. He, in his meekness, yielded and obeyed and submitted. He didn't resist or rebel or reject. He had authority. And yet he chose of his own volition, his own free will, to lay it down, he said. He laid it down. It was not taken from him. That's important. Remember, he said in another place in scripture, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels to help me? If his only concern was to save his own skin or to lord his authority over others, he would have done that. He would have come down from the cross, but he was not going to change the Father's plan of salvation for our salvation in order to prove to the Pharisees and others that he was God. He knew it. He was confident in it. He had full assurance of it, and he'd always been that way. And it was all in love for us, not out of fear. This is meekness. This is agape love. This is sacrificial love. This is committed love. We are to imitate this to each other. We are to show it towards others or to express it towards him. We lay our lives down of our own accord also in return and we're given eternal life. Remember Jesus said for whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what he's talking about. We have that calm, sure authority and love of Jesus within. And so we can walk and speak and act that way. There's no need to fear, to be anxious, to doubt, or to be jealous, or to be envious, to have strife, to manipulate, to worry, to be intimidated, to dominate, none of those things. We do need to acquire, emulate, and be drenched in his meekness. It's Christ-likeness. I believe I'm learning that grace is a form of, or perhaps the highest form of meekness. Now Solomon, the king and the wisest man who ever lived, tells us that it is his, man's glory, to overlook an offense. Not to ignore it as a judge, Jesus would, as, as if it never happened. It's an offense against the lawgiver. And we know that if a transgressor is not quickly disciplined, Ecclesiastes tells us, he will go on brashly and continue in his sin. But to inwardly forgive the person who offends you or speaks against you or sins towards you or disrespects you or mocks you in a calm, purposeful, loving manner is to exercise a meek attitude in the issuance of grace not keeping a record of sins or wrongs. And isn't that what the cross is all about? Not for him to pretend as if we were unblemished when we were fully clothed in filthy rags, but for him to choose to, to act in a way that would pay the debt in full on our behalf. Praise God, the Son of Man came to convict and not to condemn us. But we must remember his first public message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And his ongoing message to accompany his act of grace is always go and sin no more. First Peter 3, 1 and 2 is a word that Jesus gives married women through the apostle Peter. And a man who spent countless hours in the company of the king, the epitome of meekness Jesus is. He spent countless hours in the king of epitome, uh, the king of meekness. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by of you, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 5 continues by saying, For this, as we mentioned, is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands as Abraham, as, excuse me, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. They didn't disrespect and dishonor their husbands. They didn't talk him about him behind his back or in front of other people. They didn't mock him. They didn't belittle him. They didn't raise their voices against them. They didn't nag them, ladies. They didn't belittle their authority. Even when they disagreed, they submitted to their husband's authority, entrusting the outcome of the situation to the Almighty, as we should do. This yielding, this submission, this calm and respectful attitude was meekness. It was not open rebellion or a fiery tongue, it was Christ-likeness. Verse 7 instructs husbands in meekness. 
saying likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Man, it will be hard, it may be hard, to constrain the desire to, mind, to remind your wives of the place or the headship that the Lord has given you. But the meek response is calm love, forgiveness, and entrusting the outcome to the creator of her soul. Simply suppressing the anger and the tongue will result in bitterness and does nothing to train your heart. But if you know the authority that you have and you don't lord it over her or your children, the full, confident, yet humble assurance of that authority, if you walk in it correctly, even as you recognize and yield and submit to Jesus' authority over your life, will enable you to live out, walk in, and quietly exude it and react appropriately. In another short passage, that involves faith and authority. It also displays meekness on the part of a man towards Jesus. Remember, never thought of it that way, and I haven't either. Luke 7, 3-7 shows this, and it says, When the centurion heard about this, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. The centurion was a Roman, and he asked, not ordered the Jews, to speak to Jesus concerning his need. This was like Jesus speaking not only to a woman, but a Samaritan who Jews had nothing to do with. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. The centurion obviously had position, had authority, was part of the overriding military and governmental presence in Jerusalem. His attitude in his heart could have been cold and hard, since they were there as occupiers and, and to push the Jews down as they kept law and order. But he was a meek man. Not only did he care for his servant, which was probably a Jew, not in his fellow Romans, or not, and then he didn't care for his fellow Romans this way either. Not only did he care for his servant, but he went out of his way to get Jesus' attention. Again, he was a Jew, and he could have had open disdain for him, especially with the climate around Jerusalem. And then, if that wasn't enough, he deemed himself unworthy to have this Jew, Jesus, set foot in his house. And, and he spent his own money and his own resources to build a synagogue for these Jews, okay? So this is a wonderful and rich example of meekness. I've never seen it. And the word doesn't openly express it, but it is. Thank you, Lord. I'm sure you remember or have heard what both Matthew 23, 12 and Luke 14, 11 say. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One, Jesus was born under very humble circumstances, 
And he said too, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And three, he laid his life down at the hands of us he came to save. He willingly humbled himself. Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9 reminds us, And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Okay, he became meek by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, he intentionally submitted, yielded to, and obeyed the Father's perfect will, and he's glorified because of it. He came in low, he exited high. This again is a perfect illustration of meekness, and it exemplifies the core teaching in his very first public message, the Sermon on the Mount, that we talked about earlier, and that we've been talking about, really. Think about if this was your life your ministry. Imagine yourself feeling a calling on your life to preach the word. Then you go to seminary to prepare yourself for just that. Then you graduate and you're led to a church and you're given a flock. You pray and you seek the Lord for what will be your very first message to the people that you will both serve and lead. And this is what will set the tone for your people for your church, for your ministry. Would you say this? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The message is clear, and each sentence necessarily repetitive to make the point which should not and could not be misunderstood, misinterpreted, or misapplied. There are two categories, the humble and the exalted. The goal is to be one way now, so that we can be another way later. We can be one way temporarily, and we can be another way eternally, and the order is paramount. Remember, if you felt a calling on your life, you wanted to go into the ministry, you felt you were led to, you went to seminary, you graduated, you got your first church, you thought and prayed about what you were going to first say to set the tone for your ministry and for your personality and for your leadership style and for everybody to know and interact with you as Jesus did in his ministry. Would these be your first words? Look at this. We're going to look at it in two sides. We're going to see the humble, the lowly, the gentle, the meek side as the world sees the negative side of things. And we're going to see the exalted side of what comes from that. Okay, first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the lowly. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who show mercy. They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For righteousness sake theirs is the kingdom of heaven 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But the motive of the heart, which is what the Father looks at and sees and is concerned with, is not to be the elevation of ourselves. That would make us falsely humble, right? Okay, it would make us, our, our, our lowliness untrue, and our motive would be wrong and unpleasing to him. Rather, the exaltation is a reward for our humility and our lowliness and our meekness and our obedience. When we lower ourselves, it's with the intent of fulfilling the two greatest commandments. We find this in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, although you probably remember it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Putting things in the right perspective is what this does, in the right order, putting others first, serving others, washing other people's feet, leaving whatever you think your throne is in life, to, for the, and Jesus did this, for the salvation of others. Not basking in our own comfort and casualness or resting in our own righteousness, which is what many in the church do today. And it's actually his righteousness. And it was actually given or imparted to us, by the way. Remember, any righteousness we think we have apart from Christ, is considered as filthy rags, the Bible says, in Jesus' eyes. Meekness can be considered as relinquishing or setting aside any power or dominion or control or authority or, or sovereignty or rights, as we talked about a few weeks ago. We have or think we have in order to lower ourselves in relation to him and others. When we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are being meek. We are lowering ourselves. We're setting ourselves down. We're laying our lives down. When we love our neighbors, we are lowering ourselves, being meek, setting our own preferences aside. The Father once shared these simple yet profound words with me many years ago. can't remember how long. And I'll never forget them. And they're applicable here. I can remember it right now. He says, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do something. And this kind of or very well matches what he said through Paul in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 10, verse 23, Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Or profitable and this is an expression of meekness having the dominion or the strength or the power or the ability or the occasion to say or do something especially carnally speaking but spiritually speaking as well yet choosing out of love yieldedness to the spirit forgiveness obedience or another heavenly virtue to become lowly in heart, to submit to, to lay something 
or a part of our life down for the edification of men and for the glory of God. As I was driving to work in the pre-dawn hours yesterday, <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me the beginning of a couple of verses I would later look up to get the whole thing. The significance, thanks to the Holy Spirit, wasn't lost on me. It's Romans 2, 28 and 29. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. That this is intended to tell us, I found out, that to truly be meek, not just to be in church on Sunday, not just to look and do and say the right things on the outside, because you've learned them or you kind of partially believe them, but to be meek, to be truly Christ-like, we must be so inwardly. Changing what we do or say or how we dress on the outside might be a start, but it's only whitewash if it has not been established in our hearts. Moses was meek, and only apparently after spending 40 years in Midian, his wilderness, his desolate place. The father led his chosen people through the wilderness for 40 years before they were at least somewhat prepared to enter where he was leading them. Our Lord Jesus, as a man, was led into the wilderness, the desolate, the desolate place for 40 days to ward off the, the temptations of the devil. Whatever our wilderness is, will allow the Lord to break us. As my two days at work and my first day of vacation were, to humble us, to transform us, and to guide us into meekness. You probably heard it said the journey is more important than the destination. In the context of this worldly expression, the saying is true. But as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, they're both important, and one cannot reach the, the destination, the hope that we have without the Christ-likeness, the meekness. That's an integral virtue, a necessity, a fruit of the Spirit, and a telltale sign that Christ has been formed in us. My sincere, genuine, fervent prayer, brothers and sisters, and seekers and friends, is that Almighty God has and will continue to speak to you through these words of His. May He richly bless you in this way. If you're a believer, a true born-again Christian, may this meekness overtake you and overshadow you and enfold you and transform you and help you to be the salt and the light and the honorable vessel that you're meant to be. If you're not yet a forgiven, committed, submitted, yielded, sanctified, adopted son or daughter of the Most High, may you learn this lesson on the front end and may it lead you into the spirit of Psalm 51 as he draws you to himself. The Lord and God, Jesus Christ, bless all of us. I don't know if I fully comprehend, after three times the days of study and about four times the usual note pages, 
this treasure called meekness yet. So the Holy Spirit still has much work to do in me. But I fully expect and I fully hope and I anticipate the teaching, the cooperation on my end and the sharing and the shaping and the forming by the potter to have his way and to finish in this clay pot what he began in his love and bye for now. God bless you.